pastor for almost 30 years and a pastor for that long as well. And so I've dealt with a lot of issues and thought about a lot of things. So I want to leave plenty of time to talk about anything we've been talking about this week in the sessions in here, but also anything else. I've taught theology, philosophy, apologetics. I've been a pastor dealing with all kinds of issues. So I've, I've written on things like a theology, a Christian view of humor, and a Christian view of sports and competition, and a Christian view of play. Those are some of my research interests. The character of God is one of my main areas that I've done work on. But what I want to start off with is just looking at a couple of verses, and I have them for here, here for you in Colossians. If you have your Bible, Colossians 1, 28 and 29 is just what we're going to look at for a few minutes before we dive into just whatever you want to talk about. But this, this passage is really at the core of my life as a minister of the gospel. And if you're a Christian, you're a minister of the gospel. You're a theologian if you're a Christian. Actually, everybody's a theologian. All, all it means to be a theologian is to have thoughts of God. Words about God is literally what theology means. And so we're all theologians. We're, if you're a Christian, you're a, you're a minister of the gospel. And to understand the gospel simply means that you were created by God for God, for a relationship with him. And that's where your greatest joy and delight comes from, is a relationship with God. But sin is a big problem in that. It's broken that relationship. And thankfully, God didn't leave us there. He sent his son to live and die and rise from the dead for us. And when we turn from sin and self to saving faith in Jesus, everything changes. And you're a new creature in Christ and you have a life in him where he is your life. He's not just a really important part of it. And so that's the gospel. That's what it means to have a restored relationship with God. And then you live that out as a minister of the gospel. You now are God's ambassador. You're now God's instrument of drawing people to himself. That's what the church is. It's this incredible primary instrument God has created to draw people to himself to help people to grow. And so these two verses in Colossians really unpack this for us. And, and every element of it is important. It starts off by saying, Him we proclaim. So it's Christ-centered. It's Christ-focused. Now the beauty of focusing on Christ is when you do that, you get this holistic picture of who God is from the Scriptures, which means when you exalt Jesus, when you focus on Jesus, He brings you to the Father. And restores your relationship with God in that. Now the Father then will say, as we see him say, look at my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Because we have the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Jesus brings us to the Father. The Father says, behold my Son. And the Son says, depend on the Spirit. Remember, he gives the Great Commission, and then he says, but don't move a muscle in making disciples of all nations until the Holy Spirit comes in power. He came in power in the day of Pentecost, and then since then, he indwells in us and enables and equips us to be ministers powerfully affecting the lives of other people. And so we are proclaiming Christ. That's what it's about. So when you think about joining a church, when you think about linking arms with the ministry, when you come to a place like Hume, when you listen to a preacher like me this week, keep asking yourself, is this about Jesus? Or is this about the dude? Or is this about this ministry? Are they super proud of being who they are? Man, we've got so many of these celebrity preachers, and it's all about them. 
It's all about them and how cool they are and their ministry and how amazing they are instead of the one they're supposed to be pointing us to. Jesus. It's got to be about Jesus. Now, what's tough about this is you can be talking about Jesus. You can be saying all the right things, but actually the subtext that's coming through more clearly than anything is I'm awesome or we're awesome. And it's got to be Jesus that's awesome. And he must increase and we must decrease. And so that's the first test of your ministry, of, of a ministry, is it, is it truly about Jesus and exalting him? And so him we proclaim. And then I want you to pay attention to the word proclaim. It's a strong word. Like all the words of the New Testament used to talk about preaching Christ, proclaiming Christ, declaring the good news. It's not weak words. I mean, I think the main word Christians tend to use for evangelism, for preaching the gospel, is share. And sometimes, I'm writing a book right now called 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. And one of them is that the main way we talk about evangelism is share my faith. Actually, centrally, what evangelism is, is proclaiming Christ, preaching Christ. Now, I want you to know I have my faith in him, but actually my faith in him is not what I want you to know most. I want you to know Christ. And so as ministers of the gospel, we want to proclaim Christ, preach. Those are strong words of conviction. Those are strong words of boldness. Do you know what word is used to describe the disciples more than any other in the book of Acts? Bold. You know the word love never appears in the book of Acts as the church is getting established. Isn't that amazing? Now that's not to minimize how important love is. First John makes up for that all by itself, if you read that. But it is interesting that the main thing they see is these what they called common, uneducated men, but who have a boldness that's staggering. And they say, you can tell he was with Jesus. They were with Jesus. And so we proclaim Christ. And, and then we want to warn everyone. Now, when you hear warning language, you hear judgment day language. You hear the fact that we all need to stand before God one day and give an account for our lives. And this is not popular. I, I mean, we are so afraid of appearing like so-called hellfire and brimstone Christians, even though that's actually a biblical image, and Jesus preached about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, we want to soft sell it and talk about what people's felt needs are rather than the fact that they're going to answer to God someday for how they live their life and whether they responded to the way he works in everyone's heart in, in definitive ways. That's going to be what, what we need to tell. So we warn people. We warn people that judgment day is coming, that wrath is coming. Now, I know we're afraid of that. We don't want to be these you're going to hell kinds of people. And we've got to have a balanced message of love and compassion and the kindness of God in the incredible self-sacrificial way he offers salvation. But people need to know that God's the judge of all the earth as well. We, we can't cater the message to what we think people want to hear. They need to hear the whole truth. Paul, when he leaves the Ephesians after three years of ministry, you know what he says to him? I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. My goal when I teach people for any length of time is for them to be able to read their Bibles for themselves and never come back to me and say, Thomas, you held out on me. You didn't tell me what it really said. And now I've read it for myself, and, and you short, short shot the whole thing with me. And so I don't want to do that. So we warn people. We warn everyone. And then it says teaching everyone. So there's content. 
There's, there's substance to what we teach, primarily biblical substance and content. So that means we need to work hard to know what we're talking about. We need to be people who want to learn and study. Just like I can't, like I said last night, I am so grateful for even right now how you're all look, locked in. It's one, I, I can't tell you how encouraging it is to teach this group because I can tell you want to learn. And you, and, and you have to learn if you're a Christian. Christians have to be learners. We have to be curious people about who God is and who we are and who the people we seek to minister to are and ask good questions. Good ministers ask good questions and are curious people. Sometimes my kids will say, Daddy, I'm bored. And I will say, then repent. Because I think boredom is a sin. And I say, look, if you're bored, the problem's not with the world, it's with you. There's plenty to be curious about and excited about and thrilled about learning about. So, so we need to have teaching content in our ministries. And then we do it with all wisdom. We do it with all wisdom. We don't just throw it out there. We think, all right, what's the most helpful, most effective way to communicate this, to help people understand this? And like I said last night, the backdrop is your life, and then your declaration are the words you use to tell people about Jesus. And then what's the goal of all of it? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's it. And again, presentation language is judgment day language. Everyone will stand before God and give an account of their lives, Christians and non-Christians. Non-Christians for their person and Christians for their work. Did we live in ways that we're storing up treasures in heaven, like Jesus said? Did we live in ways where we are helping people to know Jesus with our lives and our words? Did we help people who do know Jesus to go deeper in their knowledge and relationship with Jesus? That, and, and so on Judgment Day, the thing we're going to have to show for our lives that's most meaningful is people who are mature in Christ, glorifying Him with their lives. That's the heart of our ministry. So on Judgment Day, we want people who know Jesus who otherwise wouldn't have known Jesus and know Him more deeply who otherwise wouldn't have if it weren't for our influence on their lives. Now, I want you to notice the everyones that are in this verse. They're in Greek, and they get translated in English, and it seems repetitive, but the meaning of these everyone's, warning everyone, teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ, talk about the comprehensive nature of ministry. It means that we invest in people we have long-term relationships with, but it also means we value influence we can have just in passing. Like I talk about that lady, Heska, who owns that coffee shop in Redlands. Just in a passing interaction, she's a blessing. She's an encouragement. She's the light of Christ. I remember I was with a friend of mine once, and I stopped, and I, I just sort of smiled at this little baby we saw in a stroller, and I said, how you doing today, bud? And I smiled. His mother was distracted doing something, and I just had this little, you know, 20-second interaction. We walked away, and my friend Ed said, hey, way to make a positive contribution to that little baby's understanding of humanity. That kid will never remember you. He'll, he'll never remember that interaction. But, but you just gave him a sense of a human, a man, a big man that actually is interested in him and sweet to him, right? And, and I believe that. I believe even in passing interactions, just saying, just expressing gratitude, being an encouraging person. Like I said last night, not being a complainer about things and, and whining about things and feeling entitled in life. You can be so different if you just decide to be a grateful person. And so, 
So we want to understand the comprehensive nature of this. And then we realize it's hard work. Ministry's hard work. That's why the Apostle Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So it's toil. It's struggle. Paul was a tent maker, you may know. He, he paid for his bills by making tents. Now, don't think REI when you hear tents. Think more of a blacksmith. The tents were made of leather, and so, so it was hard, gritty work, and Paul knew hard work. And he said, ministry's the hardest work I've ever done. You know, he talks about all the punishment and the, the persecution and the, the, the torture he had been through, beaten with rods and whipped and shipwrecked and starved and, and, and rejected by all his people. But then he says, but above all this is my concern for the churches, my people. How are they doing in their relationships with God? That's what really was his greatest burden. And so it's work. Just expect it to be work. Expect it to be hard. Expect there to be opposition. Expect there to be pushback and difficulty and challenge in ministry. It's just part of the deal. But love how it ends. With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Christ, through the Spirit, enables us to do things we never could have done otherwise, to use us in ways we never could have been used otherwise. When we are spirit-filled, spirit-dependent, spirit-anointed people, God can take otherwise useless vessels and use us for incredible impact. I think most Christians are clueless about how much God actually can and wants to use us in the lives of other people when the Spirit takes over in our lives. So be encouraged by these two verses. All right, let's start with any questions about these two verses and what I've just been saying about them. Any questions about what I've just been saying or these verses? Yeah, tell me your name. Tristan. Baseball? Third base? Yeah, okay, I knew it was one or the other. I, can, I have an uncanny ability to know not only what sport, but what position. Go ahead. Tristan, phenomenal question. I love that your question comes out of intentional ministry effort in your life. Those are questions born out of experience and a desire to make a difference and do exactly what we're talking about. So first of all, way to go to even be asking that question and have some experience in it. Yeah, second, great question. Yeah, self-assured people. I've done ministry in just about every imaginable context. I've done ministry with billionaires and with people on death row. And I actually am, am typically more hopeful when I walk into a prison than I walk into a corporate headquarters where people got everything the world offers. But here's what I learned. Long, so my friend Ed, who's actually doing the Hume teaching series uh, this, this week next door, uh, he's, he's worked with professional and co high-level college athletes his whole ministry with Athletes in Action. And I heard somebody ask him one time, how do you talk to people about how, how much they need Jesus when they got everything the world offers? And I'll never forget what he said. It's phenomenal. He said, everybody I've ever met, deep down, is two or three good questions away from crying if you just ask the right questions. And what he means by that is, this guy may have everything the world offers, 
but his relationship with his dad is broken. You know, I work with those billionaires, and they, they got everything together, but you, you spend long enough with them over a meal, and you start to find out that this billionaire who owns a steel company, one of the leading steel companies in the world, her husband left her for a younger woman after 40 years. And she hasn't talked to her son in three years. And the thing she wants most, she doesn't have. And she, she, she deep down can tap into those needs if she just pays attention. And so to get there, we just need to be unsatisfied with talking about the weather and current events and just ask questions like, hey, tell me about your family. What's, what's your relationship with your parents like? Oh, that must be tough. Your dad, your parents are divorced. Tell me what that's been like. And before you know it, you can say, hey, where do you find hope in the midst of these things? Everybody deep down has a profound need for God. That, they were created for him. So trust that fact that everybody's made for God to worship him. And even though we suppress that truth and unrighteousness, it's deep down in there. And it just takes some, some simple questions like, what do, you, what do you want most out of life? I remember I asked a guy one time, uh, I was on a college campus just talking to people about Jesus. And I asked this guy, hey, who's your hero? And he said, Frank Lloyd Wright. The guy was an architecture major. Frank Lloyd Wright was a great architect. And he said, and, and then I said, and what, I just asked him two questions. What do you want most out of life? And he said, meaningful relationships. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about Frank Lloyd Wright, but would it be okay if I went and studied him and then wrote you a letter based on your answer to those two questions? He said, sure. So he gave me his address. And I went and studied Frank Lloyd Wright. Brilliant architect. Not one good relationship. His own kids hated his guts because he was such an egomaniac. So I was able to write Brian a letter and said, do you know your hero didn't have what you want most? Maybe you need to reconsider your heroes. And maybe you need to consider Jesus as your greatest hero because he had the most meaningful relationships that you can have. And he gives you the ability to have the most meaningful relationship with God and other people. And so everybody, if you just ask some good questions, like I said, are curious, you can get to hard issues. That, that can tap into a conversation about important spiritual things. Helpful, Tristan? All right, good. Thanks. Beautiful. What else? Anything else about what we were talking about? Go ahead. Tell me your name. Joshua. Yeah, so I, I don't think we lead with Judgment Day necessarily. I think we lead with where I led with, that you're made by God in his image, an awesome creature for a relationship with him to glorify him with your life. That's how profoundly meaningful you and your life are. And that's why your sin matters to God, right? Because you're created for such incredible realities that when you settle for the realities of just this world that, that, that are so non-tapping into what you're for. So I think we could start very positive, but, but then say, but, but you answer to your creator for how you live. So I'll say to people, I think you were made for God. I think you are capable of glorifying him with your life. You're, you're more like God than anything else in all of creation. The Lego movie's right. Everything is awesome. And, and you're more awesome than anything else as a human being, right? And so if you're created for God to worship him and glorify him with your life, how's that going? How you do, if that is the goal of your life, how you doing with that? Because otherwise you say to people, you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. And they say, I'm not that bad. I never killed anybody. I don't need anybody to die for me. That's a bit extreme, isn't it? I'm a pretty nice person, actually. If they're the one who determines the, the purpose of their life and how they're doing, then it's up to them. But if God's your creator, it's up to him. And, and so 
that's all it means to be at point of judgment day is you answer to your creator for how you lived your life. And I think that makes sense to most people. Now, they might not believe in a creator, and then we can talk about that, how you explain the, the sheer existence of everything and the incredible design of everything, and then we move the conversation back. But ask good questions. I remember I had a half-hour conversation with a guy trying to convince him that God existed, and finally when I let him get a word in, he said, oh, I believe in God. Well, that was a waste of half hour, right? We could have started there. But I had all these assumptions because I didn't ask good questions. And so ask good questions, find out where people are, and then start where they are with more questions and, and, and bringing biblical truth into the conversation, which should include accountability to God, which is all Judgment Day is. Does that make sense? Okay, excellent. Thanks. One more question about, yeah, tell me your name. Elliot. Great question. What's my opinion about Christians getting involved in the political arena? Phenomenal question. Is that an interest of yours? Yeah, good. So I think the first thing we need to do is distinguish between the, the particular investment callings of individual Christians or groups of Christians and the job of the church. The job of the local church is to be the primary gospel vehicle to the world, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry in a gospel-centered, Christ-exalting way, focusing on the teaching of Scripture and the worldview that Scripture brings to people seeking to exalt Christ. So it's pretty basic and fundamental in that way. But then the idea is individual Christians will take that fundamental worldview into the world in whatever arena God calls them into. Maybe as a homemaker raising four kids to glorify God with, with their lives when you finally launch them, right? And that's the primary focus, right? Not, not diving into politics or being a light in the business world or the entertainment industry or, or, or public schools. For some Christians, it, it'll be the political realm, either, either behind the scenes or running for office. And so it depends on the particular calling. We should all be encouraging each other in other particular callings and not feeling competition or like, why aren't you involved in politics? Because I'm raising four kids, right? Or I'm diving in the business world. You go do your thing, man, and I'll cheer you on. And we cheer each other on. And so we recognize particular callings that some individual in groups of Christians have that we champion but we also allow for different particularities in the way we carry out our Christ-exalting efforts. Make sense? Excellent. Great. What else? Yeah. Tell me your name. Micah. Micah. Okay, excellent. So how do, how do you talk to somebody who's got a chronic condition that they're blaming on God? Good. Okay, so the problem of evil. How could there be evil in the world, not just that affects me, but that affects everybody? When somebody has acute challenges on a daily basis, it's particularly hard to stay grateful and not get bitter. Huge challenge. And, and so what we want to help them do is realize sort of where we started on Monday morning that we are not home yet. This world is broken. This world is because of our rebellion against God. It's a cursed world. It's filled with difficulty and pain from natural realities like cancer and moral realities like people killing each other. 
and hating each other, right? And so we live in a very broken world. We're going to talk about this tonight. It's called the result of sin. And so the fact that the world has sin and evil and brokenness and a cursed reality is something we need to realize is because of human rebellion against the Creator. That's what got us into this mess. But then we need to also acknowledge, as we've been seeing in Daniel, that God's in it. God reigns and he rules over this, this broken and fallen world. It didn't catch him off guard. He doesn't lack the power to do something about it. And as a matter of fact, he has the solution to sin and evil and brokenness and the pain we experience every day. And it comes through the reconciling work of Jesus. We have a broken relationship with the creator, so the whole creation is in a broken state because of that rebellion. But God is working out a plan, restoring all things to himself starting with a rebellious humanity. And those of us who are restored in our relationship with God, we are the ones leading the way to the ultimate restoration of all things. And so there's a massive movement God is working out to make his creation back in alignment with him and not even restore it to what it was, but make it incredibly better than it was. And so we're part of this wonderful process God's working out. And so to, to sit in the pain and weep over it and acknowledge it and sympathize with it, but also say God is still in this, knowing if you read Romans 8, which Luther said was the, the Genesis 3 of the New Testament. Genesis 3 is how it all got broken. Romans 8 is, is returning to that idea and say, yeah, it's broken, subjected by the one who created it. So there's groaning in this world, so we don't settle for this world. And we go to God into the world to come. Because this world's not our home. Our heavenly home awaits. And, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. So we have hope in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of acknowledging the struggle. Does that help? Okay, excellent. What else? Yeah. Say that again. I missed a word there. Oh, who's been hurt? Hurt, yes, okay. Yeah, it's grievous, and as Christians, we need to own it and say, yeah, we hurt people sometimes. We disappoint people sometimes. We, we fail miserably sometimes. But I wouldn't want to get into self-loathing as Christians. I see a lot of that, especially among young people, like bashing the church and saying, yeah, we Christians, we're a bunch of losers. and We mess up. And, and, and it almost say, see how self-critical I am? See how much I'm not one of the problem people, right? Well, we don't want to be self-righteous about self-righteous people or pharisaical about Pharisees, right? We, we want to own it and say, yeah, we fail and we disappoint and some of those people aren't real Christians. And, and the, the Christians of the world have done incredible good throughout our whole history. You go all over the world, there are churches started by Christians and schools started by Christians and hospitals started by Christians. We're leading the way in mercy ministry in this world, caring for the poor in this world, giving of ourselves to the poor. So let's, let's not dismiss all the incredible good the church has done. We're behind all the art in the Western culture that, that's risen to prominence, right? So in, in the beautiful music, Bach was playing music to the glory of God. And so, so we've done good, so let's not just focus on the negative, let's own the negative and say, yeah, if I disappoint you, if I hurt you, it shows you how much I need a savior. 
So we want to be good examples, but we're not the ultimate example Jesus is. So the brokenness that still is even in the church just points us to our need for a Savior in an ongoing way. It's, it's about Jesus, not how great we are ultimately. It's about how great he is. So when we fail, it's an opportunity to go to the foot of the cross with those failures and show people how much we all need Jesus as well. Good. All right. One or two more. One more question. Tell me your name. Gianna. Hi, Gianna. No, no. What is it? Adriana. Hi, Adriana. More, more comfortable connecting to God? Okay, great question, Adriana. Connecting to God is a profoundly spiritual reality and relational reality. But it's worked out in normal daily stuff. Kind of like my relationship with my wife, right? I want a good relationship with my wife, so I regularly ask her questions about how she's doing and about how I'm doing and how our relationship is going. I talk to her, which is why we pray. Regularly and in set aside times. I want to foster my relationship with God by going to his word and finding out what he, believe, what, he believe, what he thinks about everything. And then learn to think his thoughts after him. I grow my relationship with God in intimacy by gathering with the saints like we are right now. Encouraging one another in mutual ways. And regularly in church. In the big church and in youth group and anytime saints are gathering, you can be encouraged. You grow in your relationship with God when you obey him, when you step out in faith and do what he says and it validates the truthfulness of what he says. You, you grow in your relationship with God when you suffer to the glory of God, when you lean into suffering and say, Lord, what do you have for me in this? You grow in your relationship with God when you give your money because that peels your fingers off the idol in your life of materialism. You, you grow in your relationship with God when you serve other people and act like Jesus. And in Philippians 2, consider others as more important than yourself kind of way. All of these realities, when you proclaim Christ, when you speak well of Jesus to people, it deepens your affection and appreciation for him. So it's the simple things and ways Christians grow we commit to in a daily disciplined way. And you're going to see yourself grow as the Spirit uses those means of grace to draw you closer in your intimacy with God. That's all we got time for. I love you, right? Yes, I love you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these dear young people that are such an encouragement today with, to me with their questions, with their attentiveness, with their obvious eagerness to grow and know you. So bless them in this, Lord. Turn these, these good intentions into acts of faith and fruitful lives for the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are amazing. <laughs>